one. Good morning, Max Wessler. How are you? <laughs> I'm great, Lauren Yates. How are you? Ah, uh, so good, and so good to see ya. Um, can you tell us like wh where you are right now? Sure. So I'm in my uh, office in my house in St. Louis, Missouri, in the middle of the United States. Yeah, right. And, and like, wh uh, what's it like over there right now? What's been going on in St. Louis, Missouri? For, you know, the sixth or seventh month of this year, there are seemingly more questions than answers. Mm -hmm. And yet we're taking it, you know, the best we can every day. Uh, it's it's a challenge. This is the this is unlike anything that I've ever lived through. I'm I'm yeah. sure you feel the same. This yeah, is totally. pretty tough. Did you guys have a, yeah. a lockdown for a while? There was um, there was a bit of a lockdown. Yes. Now that I'm thinking about it, there was uh, it was encouraged that only essential businesses be open. Mm. Um, but you could still as an American and in, in as a Missourian, we could still go to the grocery store. We could still, you know, mm. run necessary errands, go to the doctor if we needed to go to the doctor. So nothing to the level that others have experienced where they were fully locked down, fully in quarantine. Um, in fact, uh, around the time that it got pretty bad in the States, I was, uh, intending to have a spring break with my family in Colorado. We were going skiing and, um, it was heartbreaking to watch. I have a nine year old and 12 year old stepdaughter and, uh, it was heartbreaking to watch them wipe down the airplane seats. Mm. And we were wearing, I, we weren't wearing masks at the time. I don't think that, uh, that had been in the in the dialogue yet, but um, everyone was very protective, and you know we were washing our hands constantly. And um, we got to Colorado. I skied for one day, and the governor shut down all of the resorts, all of the mountains, all of the ski lifts, and so we frantically booked air uh, flights the next morning and Whoa. came back home. I bought a coffee. Uh, coffee maker <laughs> like the day that day and it has really paid off i i have to say um yeah right yeah i feel like a lot yeah, of people have been like buying like like coffee makers and like cooking at home and yeah but so devastating about your your family holiday like that kind of oh, happened it's the, yeah it's the least the least yeah. i mean people have suffered so much far worse. And, and, you know, the countless deaths that we've seen, the countless illnesses that we've seen, yeah. it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. And, you know, so for the last, for the last year or so, I've been working as the, um, sort of the brand director for a 125 year old family owned business here in St. Louis. It, the family's called Merits. They're a, mm -hmm. they were a Swiss family that came over in 1894 and established a jewelry and imports business. And at the turn of the Great Depression in 1929, they pivoted to uh, the incentives industry. They started selling their jewelry as an incentive piece to other businesses. So a B2B of its yeah, of right. you know the earliest incarnation. And they invented the incentives industry. And I'm to helping to tell that story for them. Yeah, Go what, ahead. can you explain what the incentives industry is? Like I have no idea what you're talking about right now. <laughs> So if you've ever signed up for a credit card with an airline, mm -hmm. we probably had something to do with that. 
if you've ever oh, gotten points yeah, oh, to use towards right. a prize closet or anything like that, that's, that's the incentives. And then travel is a big part of our business. Mm. And travel was the first yeah. industry impacted by this. Yeah, travel And it will and likely be the last to recover. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think like globally, like there's only going to be a handful of airlines that can continue to run, um, you know, make it through this. Um, yeah, hospitality and travel have been like the main hit. Um, it reminds me of... Can um, I, 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 can I ask? Can I, yeah. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, yeah. where are you in the world right now? Are you in Bangkok? <laughs> I'm in Bangkok right now, yeah. Yeah, I've been in Bangkok since March because um, uh, I came from France. And, yeah, when when it was things were starting to get bad, I, I thought, okay, I need to go back to Bangkok, which is where my business is based. I need to – otherwise I'm going to lose my business and my parents are here. And, you know, like I just felt like I needed to hold the fort a little bit. And it definitely here um, we we didn't actually go into a full lockdown. Um, like things didn't go to a complete standstill as it did yeah. in in Europe and in America and in Australia. I feel like in Asia we have such a different culture here. We have like a very cooperative. I don't want to use this, the word compliant, but in a way compliant society where where people do respect the rules and people do chip in and and you know like take the all the necessary measures and we we are no strangers to disease and outbreak so you know it's taken very seriously here and as a result honestly Thailand has done really well through this um the the pandemic and I think not economically though there has been like a quite a big economic fallout because we are a manufacturing country. We are a very big uh, tourist destination. And so, you know, cutting the international tourism has caused big job loss here. Um, but in terms of controlling the disease, I feel like big ups to the public health authority that we have here. People, it's like um, the, the system is a very grassroots system here. In every district, we have a health, a health officer, and that is a group like that is a managed group of volunteers who really have their eyes on the ground, are in very close connection with that that local district community, and therefore any new like health precautions or you know new measures can be really quickly implemented into um, society and and respected uh, so yeah really big difference here it's very interesting you you talk about you talked about a lot of things there and uh, one of the things that I've seen in your Instagram stories that I was really particularly taken by is the way that your community has seen a lot of folks chip in. And it's, mm. it was that food sharing. Could you talk a yeah, little bit yeah. about that? Oh, that was yeah. fascinating. The Dulpan Suk. So, um, yeah, we have this yes. system. Yeah, the, I mean, you know, that we have this system of, like, just put out an old cabinet that you have in your house. Put yeah. it out the front of your house on the street and 
and welcome people to fill it with groceries, fill it with essential foods, you know, preferably healthy things like usually people put in rice, canned fish, um, you know, like even toothpaste and toothbrushes, like essential things that, that people need. And there's this honour system of like, yeah, you, you take a little bit, you leave enough for other people to, to use as well. But there's, so yeah, I mean, like, yeah, this has, it's nothing really new in our culture, but this is so typical of the Thai culture. It's just, um, yeah, it's a, sure. well, it, it's, it's and the, a, the way that it, it has a ripple effect and it, it does impact not just oh, the yeah. food, but also just the way that you interact with one another. I think that that's so beautiful. Um, yeah. Does that, does that disclude, does that disclude or are food banks included in that? Do, do those exist as well? Yeah, yeah. Thai there culture? are food do, do banks. Have, yeah. There are a lot of grassroots organizations that, that, that are constantly, continuously helping, um, the underprivileged in society. Um, there's, I think it's, it's a very predominantly Buddhist um, society where like something like in the 90 percentile range of Buddhism, um, like as a population, uh, which means, wow. which I, I think it's not a good or a bad thing, you know, but it just means that there is a cohesiveness of, you know, there's no kind mm. of, big separation in in thinking or you know so so when you do need to mobilize a whole society a community it's quite a, a seamless um process yeah so yeah we we've had a very different um you know we haven't really been affected too much like in the day-to-day -day, um but we have seen you know massive job loss and 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 it continues because the more the longer that um, America and Europe and Australia are affected by this pandemic, the more we are economically because we are manufacturing goods for these countries. We are servicing the tourism trade for these, you know, other countries, and and as well, uh, China is a, has a big impact on our tourism. Um, here, there's massive Chinese uh, numbers of Chinese tourists coming to Thailand. Um, so, yeah, like it's been really crazy here. But, um, yeah, my hope is that, you know, I think we're not going to we're not going to have a vaccine for quite a long time. But we do need to, like, yeah. learn how to manage for the for the for the meantime until we we do. You know, and that means people need to cooperate and people need to, like, wear masks and wash their hands. And, you know, it's the, just to, to for, for someone in Thailand to, to realise that wearing a mask has become a controversial political issue is just, it blows our minds. <laughs> so, yeah. But I want to get back to you um, because, yeah... <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I will, I will say that, that, um, we, uh, we have politicized everything in the last six months. It's been really hard to know how to navigate the, the changes that we've all experienced, um, because everything down to 
uh, as you said, a mask mm-hmm. has become this hotbed topic of, you know, well, I'm not going to let you into my business if you're wearing a mask in certain circumstances. Whoa. And in other circumstances, we've said, I'm not going to let you into my business if you are wearing a mask, yeah, yeah. right? So it's like, depending yeah. on which side of the line you're on, you take this very strong stance and it's, um, they're both oppressive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's so sad. Yeah. It's really so sad. Um, I want to talk about but, the Fauci cap that you've made. So on on that note, yes. here is the Fauci cap. Awesome. It's a navy blue wool Ebbets Field flannels cap. It's made in America. Mm. Um, we had to wait quite a while. We waited about eight weeks for the mm. factory to reopen safely. Uh, they, they are still practicing social distancing, but they put Dr. Fauci's face on the front in felt so awesome. and embroidered it with navy. Um, and then we put a little phrase on the back that says, uh, uh, this is an adjustable here, it says, wash your hands. Because yeah. at the time, April was when we made these, Dr. Fauci's message to everyone was, please allow for the medical professionals mm. to obtain the masks that they need wear a bandana, make yeah. a mask, find a way to protect yourself, cover your face, don't touch your face, wash your hands. Mm. So <laughs> had we said wear a mask, this hat, this ball cap would have become politicized. Yeah. Um, I feel like even thank even God. washing your hands has become politicized. I hope not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I live with three germaphobes, so. <laughs> but I really love the fact that you made this hat, like, and how quick the turnaround, despite the lockdown and, and having to Sorry. wait. Yeah, but the turnaround for the hat, I think, you know, it's really like an awesome project that you did. It reminds me of um, with the masks. There's a lot of, there's been quite a few um American brands that have been making masks like Gitman, Gitman um, have been doing their own masks. I've seen Chris on the Instagram wearing his shirt matching his mask, but not many caps. And I think like what, what was the thought process behind the, the cap? Sure. I was in a meeting at work and someone said we were lamenting how much we missed sports. Mm. And I watch ESPN Sports Center religiously at least 30 minutes, sometimes an hour every day, just to get the news of the day as it relates to sports. And I said offhandedly that should we be allowed to have a corporate softball team, I would want us to be called the Fauci's because <laughs> Dr. Fauci's White House press briefings had replaced my sports center. Mm. And and uh, someone said, we should get jerseys regardless. That's a great idea. And I was talking with my friend Micah Smith that night, a an illustrator and art director uh, based in Kansas City, which is about four hours west of St. Louis. And um, I was telling him that story and he lifted up his iPad <laughs> sketch pad with Dr. Fauci's face on it. And I said, let's put that wow. on a cap. And um, Seattle was in the news at the time because it would it was the first and hardest hit uh, mm-hmm. with the coronavirus. And I thought, how could we support the Seattle community? Well, there's a Seattle hat maker. Why don't we mm-hmm. do it with them? And um, Micah's good friend, uh, Billy Brimblecom, uh, provides those in need with prosthetics 
um, and we thought this is a way to get America back on its feet, yeah. so to speak. Um, and so we we partnered with them to uh, so a portion of the proceeds from each ball cap sold will go to his organization. It's called Steps of Faith, and um, and yeah, it kind of just happened organically like that. Uh, mm. We sold something close to twelve dozen ball caps in the span of a couple weeks and we're going to do a second run uh here in the next couple weeks so yeah awesome very excited yeah i love the fact that you chose ebbetsfield flannels because they are one of my favorite hat makers um and obviously they're a heritage um, manufacturer and they've been making baseball caps for I don't know how long they have, probably. Since the 80s. Yeah, right. Yeah. And um, yeah. But one of the sports that has been really hardly hit by the virus is baseball. You know, we've got the NBA back in their little, in their, um, what do they, they call it a bubble, um, like a. In the bubble. Kind of, in the bubble. Mm-hmm. But, but baseball's yeah, been. Yeah, Dis- Disney World. Yeah, Baseball's been hit. Um, so, so my my team is the St. Louis Cardinals, mm-hmm. the Cardinals, um, and my favorite player Yadier Molina. He has coronavirus. Uh, Another player has come down with coronavirus as of I think this time last night or yesterday. It was announced that they were canceling uh, the weekend series with our Chicago rivals, the Cubs. Um, I don't envision them being able to finish the baseball mm-hmm. season, but far be it for me to judge or, or have any understanding of it. Um, I think that the bubble does make a lot of sense. I also think it makes a ton of sense to just be safe. Yeah. So I would be willing to like wait out sports for a little while longer in order to protect the widest swath of our population. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Now I need to go back to you because, you know, some people listening might not know um, about you. So I want to tell everyone that, you know, I've been following your blog, which used to be called All Plaid Out, um, for I feel like it's been <laughs> it's... like over 10 years. It's been a long time. Um, and for those out there who don't know, it was kind of like a beautiful universe of plaid um, that I used to love, like, you know, scrolling through and like, then you kind of were focusing on, on, you know, manufacturing and, you know, the beautiful, the beauty of heritage, um, manufacturing, like, can you tell us, you know, what your, your, that journey has been for you and, and where it's taken you now? Yeah, happily, happily. So All Plaid Out uh, began, it, it was a, a birthday present to myself in 2008. I, I, December of 2008, the, on my birthday, I signed up for the URL and started blogging on the 8th of December. Uh, I Not to deflect, but I, I've been a fan of yours hey. for a long time, too. So, so I'm, I'm holding up for, the, for our listening audience, I'm holding up a ponytail journal uh, tote bag, uh, which I've been very like, precariously bag. delicate with. It's so good, and it uh, stays on our do- on our doorknob going out to our car. That's awesome. Anytime we go to the grocery store, we 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 rep you hard. Oh, so thanks um, so much. But yeah, yeah. Uh, All plaid out started um, for a number of reasons. 
I had a blog. I had a couple blogs. One was a little uh, too confessional and a little too like cut to the bone about my feelings. And, you know, <laughs> that just didn't cut it. And the other one was a little too niche. It was just mixtapes that I was sharing, mostly with friends who I'd made mixtapes for growing That's up. That's awesome. And do you still yeah. have, is that still somewhere I can find on the internet? I, some, sometime I will consolidate that whole journey. It was a, only a couple of years, but it was that time in my twenties when I had no responsibilities, no money, but I lived in a town where I could walk to free shows. I could sneak into expensive shows. I could find myself in and amongst my heroes. And yeah. I did that all the time. And I became really engaged in the music community at that mm. time. Um, but I was living uh, for a short time on the Upper East Side before moving to Brooklyn. When I started All Plat Out, I was in Brooklyn. And on the Upper East Side, I lived with these two guys who uh, started a food blog. This was like 2007, I guess, 2006. And um, they quickly like almost overnight became a sensation because they spent a weekend having every meal in a different borough of New York eating pizza. Whoa. And that blog post just took off and they became known as like the guys who had five boroughs of pizza and they would do little gimmicky things like that all over the city and um, get up at the crack of dawn and go to the fish fishing wharf and like document the, all the fish coming into the city. And it's fascinating. Millions yeah. and millions of pounds of fish get consumed in New York City every day. And it's yeah. like one little funnel of production that all that happens at. So um, they did stuff like that. And I was like so inspired. I also was like, we were living in, you know, we were 20. We were in our 20s. It, like mm. it was the smallest kitchen. The dishwasher, we didn't have a dishwasher. We had a sink, was always just overflowing with everything that they were cooking. <laughs> and um, I didn't have a space in the fridge, really, that, you know. <laughs> but I got to watch these guys and how they built what they built and the way that they told their stories. And I took a lot of inspiration from their abilities. Um, I was working at the time as a textbook editor at a division of Condé Nast. Um, editing textbooks on fashion design and interiors design. Oh, that's so fun. Um, it was so fun. And it was so, uh, it was so dry. <laughs> and so my, my boss at the time, she had kind of like a, a, an emergency all staff. And she was like, that's it. I've had it. You guys need to find something to keep your minds fresh. And she explained that she had been blogging and she had been blogging a novel, I think. She was like doing like a serialized novel on a blog. Mm. And she said, Max, why don't you write about, you know, I don't know, you're always dressed so nice. Why don't you write about menswear and or something like that? And I was like, light bulb. And yeah, uh, so I started writing about that and it it just became kind of a catch-all for all the things that I was interested in. Occasionally I'd post a mixtape. Occasionally I'd post about um, something completely off base, a, a film I loved or, you know, a, a person that I really loved. But the thing that got me noticed was a similar thing where I went to the source on something. Mm. Um, 
I had been blogging for a couple months in one of the Condé Nast buildings in New York at the time. And I was riding the elevator and somebody said, you know, I, I love your blog. And somebody else overheard it and they said, what's your blog? And it happened to be a, a fashion editor at a men's magazine. And he said, oh, I'll go check it out. And he and I started emailing and I asked him if he would get lunch. He advised me to focus on something that I was really passionate about, which was the classics, American made, mm. usually inspired by something militaristic or industrial revolution era, you know, the dungarees, the denims, the, the bean boot. So it was the bean boot that was the first thing. And this fashion editor put me in touch with LL Bean's PR team. And he said, this guy's gonna come up and he's going to document your factory, your bean boot factory. And uh, I called this college kid who was in Maine, um, who I was a fan of his blog. And I said, hey, you take great pictures. Would you want to come with me? His name was Foster Huntington. And the two of us kind of met at the factory, <laughs> walked in the doors. And the next thing I knew, we were triple stitching rubber to leather. And uh, we posted the pictures and the stories that we documented that day on our respective blogs. And uh, they kept getting shared. And it was shared by bigger outlets and bigger outlets, GQ and Details and Esquire and the New York Times and the Washington Post wow. and the Wall Street Journal. We're all talking about these two, you know, wiry haired <laughs> bloggers who yeah. went and documented a factory. The next thing I know, every factory in America is saying like, hey, can you come do that Whoa. for me? So I had to learn how to use a camera and I, <laughs> and I had to learn like how to how to kind of maneuver around a factory. Mm. And one of the first places that I documented was uh, was Gitman, the place that you just mentioned. Ah. And uh, yeah, what a and, uh, uh, I, I, I met Chris through some friends who had a uh, who have a store in uh, in Wisconsin and um documented the factory, wrote about it. He kind of shared it around the company. And I was uh, quickly asked if I would want to come help them out, work with them in some way. And I, I adored Chris. And uh, and yeah, so it didn't work out at first. And I was getting kind of burnt out on New York. I was feeling like I was tired of uh, the dishes piling up in the sink, the tiny rooms, the um, the frankly, the textbook editor job just wasn't for me. And uh, so I packed up at the end of my lease in the beginning of the summer of 2009. I moved back to my parents' house here in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And about two weeks later, the CEO of the company that owns Gitman called me and said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, I'm sitting watching golf on TV with my dad. <laughs> Happy Fourth of July. And uh uh, he said, perfect, stay right there. You're going to be our Midwestern sales rep. And I started to expand my network. So I had like a 12 or 13 state territory of the Midwest where I was basically on the road almost every day. Um, I would go out for a month and come back and dump my luggage out in the laundry room, wash my luggage, dry my luggage or my laundry <laughs> and put it back in the luggage and then go back out that Monday um, and in the process, I started meeting all of these people that were making things all over the country. Mm. Um, and one of the people that I met 
along the way with somebody that had followed my blog and then became something of a my patron saint, he he helped me immensely, was this guy named Joe Gannon. And Joe and I, um, we started traveling together to meet these makers. Um, I should say that the blog started to kind of dwindle because I got a directive from my bosses at Gitman that said, you can't share a blog post until you've gotten a sale. And what I... Yeah. yeah. So they, they didn't really understand that, like, I was helping to spread the gospel of Made in America through their company to all these other companies. I continued to document those factories. I continued to kind of like develop the relationships. I just didn't necessarily keep all plat out going in the way that I would have liked um, because I felt like I would have lost my job. Mm. Um, but I met Joe. Joe and I started traveling to some folks that made stuff. And one night we were sleeping on the floor of a friend's house, a uh, friend's like living room. Mm. We had just spent the night making belts and belt buckles with this friend. And, uh, Joe said that was really fun. And one of us said to the other one, we should like film this. Yeah. And so it was like only a couple months later, we were back in that same living room, uh, making belts and belt buckles out in the yard. And we shot, a pilot for a show we called made right here. Um, I, uh, I, I have a certificate. I spent two years at an acting conservatory and I had my designs in college on becoming a broadcast journalist. Um, so I was very comfortable in front of the camera. And then there's this big strapping Joe who is, you know, naturally handsome and has just like a natural, uh, appeal. Yeah. With his camera. big handlebar so kinda, mustache. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the two of us just, we hit off, we hit it off really well. I was kind of like the history historian, the nerd, the, the guy that was there to help express the importance mm. of what we were documenting. And Joe was there to show just how hard their job was. So we would mm. sit down together and I would invariably break a needle or or like take a riveter and destroy, destroy <laughs> something. And, and Joe would come in and show like with time and patience and preci- precision, these are time honored traditions and time honored mm. trades that yeah. people pass from one generation to the next. And, um, f- for about, you know, for about the next five years, I spent, um, two weeks of every month in a factory I started doing it with Joe with me right here. We got a sponsorship from a coffee company called Maxwell House Coffee that in this country is owned by Kraft Foods, or I think it's actually now owned by a company called Mondelez. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, around the time that the pilot came out, another friend at Jim Beam saw it and she said, hey, we're trying to do something similar with one of our products. Would you want to come help? And that became Basil Hayden's. Basil Hayden's bourbon uh, did not have a website. It was part of this small batch family of bourbons that Jim Beam was making and trying to give um, give some substance to. Mm. And we thought, well, it's made in America. The bottles are hand hand assembled in their factory in Kentucky. Um, let's see what we can do. And so I was given carte blanche. And again, I, I traveled from coast to coast and I documented makers, craftspeople, artisans, farmers, uh, local bartenders. And, and, uh, 
I made like all this stuff in America and it all had to do with just celebrating your backyard, celebrating the people that, you know, you might have overlooked in your own neighborhood that are doing things that are high quality, that are done the right way. And, um, and yeah, I, I built a career out of that. I became kind of like this brand builder, but with a specialty in heritage, in American made, in, Mm -hmm. um, true American history. So which is cool. like really probably become will obviously become your passion is like this kind of, you know, beautiful romantic um, you know, story of how things are made in America. You must have seen so many different obviously different makers and different kinds of products being made in America. What was like do you have any kind of like highlights, maybe the weirdest or like most, you know, unique kind of things being made? Yeah, so that's a great question. One of the things that we always went into the factory with was who's the oldest person here? Who's been working here the longest? Who's the newest person here? Who's the strangest person here? Who's the person that, you know, just lights up? Mm. the room, who's the most outgoing, who's the least outgoing. And we we talked to all of those folks. We wanted to talk to kind of the extremes to get a sense of the character, right? Yeah. And you're right that I bumped into so many incredible stories just along the way. I was just watching the football helmet factory that's about an hour and a half from St. Louis. Um, they make football helmets and baseball helmets. And it was a mother and a daughter and a cousin that all stand right in a row and they assemble the inside, the guts of the of the helmets. And um, we saw that time and again. At, at Gitman, there was a grandmother who handed to her daughter, who handed to her daughter uh, all the parts of a of a shirt sleeve. Mm. You know, the and seeing how that sort of they, the grandmother would then criticize her daughter, and her daughter would criticize her daughter. I lit up because Mm. that's what we wanted to show was that these folks have been doing this this way for For generations. generations. Mm. And the other thing that that the sad side of it is that a lot of times to make things in this country, it's really expensive to keep up with minimum wages, to keep Mm. up with union, uh, union rules and union laws. Yeah. Especially, you know, if you are unionized, God willing, um, it's expensive. And often the things that the individuals in the factory are making, they can't even afford themselves. Mm. Um, a, a success story there I saw uh, right after I went to the L.O. Bean Boot Factory, I went to the Quadi Moccasin Factory. And the day I was there in 2009, um, March of 2009, I asked a gentleman, you know, I noticed that you're not wearing the shoes. And he said, I can't afford them. And a few years later, I went back with Basil Hayden's and everybody in the factory was wearing Quadi. Mm-hmm. Now, it might have been a plant, but I believe that they got the message that yeah. we need to take good care of our people. Yeah. We need to provide for them in ways that they can afford to at least provide for themselves. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's I- it's a. Uh, it's sad. Yeah. It's really sad. I feel like, you know, this is the case with many countries is that, you know, the globalized marketplace has become very competitive 
and you know there are political forces at play there are many factors at play that make um make products for example made in america or made in the uk um you know made in japan even now that you know these products are becoming very very expensive because of you know you know simple you know wages you know so many factors but at the same time i feel like products made from these countries are sought out because um because of their the the heritage because of the fact that you can trust that they are of a, of a very high quality um quality control is very important um and i think that's in in theory that is why you know why you would make in countries like you know like these but um in some cases there there are arguments that made in america um made in i would argue that you know you can have a certain level of quality anywhere whether you make it in in um india in china in america wherever um but the the real question is what is the factory like how are they treating their 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 factory workers um what are the are their health is their health insurance what are the you know yeah exactly how are how are their makers being looked after which is the real question that consumers aren't really asking because you know this is kind of a behind the scenes area of the right. industry that that you know the industry guard and it's because you know of obviously it's being guarded because there are a lot of untruths um you know that need guarding you're you're tread you're you're tread you're treading very carefully out into this yeah. conversation i really appreciate that <laughs> and i'm i'm here to just jump right in i will jump yeah, in feet go first for it. but let me just say that there is high quality and low quality mm. everywhere this is not controversial what i'm saying everyone yeah. is aware of this that certain places do certain things better than other places mm. certain places have certain rules in place and regulations in place that allow them to do things in a way that's different or differently better than other places um and certain cultures certain ways of life are celebrated and in other cultures that same way of life might be denigrated and i saw all of that and i've mm. seen all of that throughout my career and one of the things that drives me absolutely crazy is that when people are like oh that's max he's a made in america freak i'm a quality freak mm. i i i want to dispel the rumors i yeah. i appreciate and admire and love american made brands and american made goods um but only the ones that i find hold up over yeah. time Homer Lachlan China Company, uh, Ebbetsfield Flannels, you know, nice. um, Gitman, Gitman Brothers, mm. the, 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 but even the Gitman Brothers factory has its problems. Mm. And I can say firsthand because I spent a couple years, you know, pacing mm. the, the four football fields, steep floors of that beautiful factory dug into the Schuylkill mountains in the basement of Shelly Gitman's apartment. Um, <laughs> You know, yeah. not to rant, but 
it's a shame. It's a real yeah. shame what's happening to a lot of that story and that piece of us that small town America is going the way of the dinosaur. Um, mm. I don't, and I, I was born in a small town. I, I just wrote about this a little bit, but I, you know, I love and admire small towns. They mean the world to me and they are where the character of America of that bootstrap mentality comes from the, the desire to stay and establish yourself in the community where you were reared and the, uh, and the contrasting desire to get out and prove them all wrong. Right. That's mm. the American narrative. And, um, those are two wonderful American narratives um, amongst many, but to get back to the quality piece, Gitman doesn't make a delicate flowing Brunello Cuccinelli. They make a hard wearing Oxford cloth yeah. button down with a, with a, Chalk button. These are these are pearl buttons. I realize, but they started with chalk buttons, and it had everything to do with the fact that in 1978, when the Gitman brothers were sitting on yards and yards of fabric, they needed an inexpensive button to go with it because they couldn't. They simply couldn't afford to put these shirts out, and then the chalk button became a mo their motif. It became yeah. like a a symbol. And it, then it became adopted by Brooks Brothers and Ralph Lauren and all these other companies in this late in the early 80s and into the 90s. Anyway, the fact is, not everybody can do everything the best. Mm. And I've seen I've seen really poor quality. I've chosen to kind of turn a blind eye to it or not necessarily shine as bright a light on those makers. Mm. And similarly, in China in Japan, in India, in Canada, in Mexico, all over Europe, Russia, mm -hmm. Africa, there are high quality makers everywhere. Yes. And uh, it's always been my desire to find them, to seek them out, to talk about them, to showcase them. Um, and I'm hoping that in a post-COVID world, we can become even more globally minded than we've ever been before. Mm. Um, I don't know if that if that's possible, I don't know if that's necessarily what, where you were going with this conversation, yeah. but well, we that's... absolutely are. Bec in that, I definitely think that in the post-COVID world, yes, we we will be more globalized because we already have become more globalized in this short space yeah. of time. Um, yeah, so you know that's that goes without. I'm talking. Saying. I'm talking to you through my computer screen. You yeah. are in Thailand. I, I am in Missouri. Yeah. <laughs> I am in Mark Twain's Mark Twain's Missouri. Like it's Yeah, exactly. Is, uh it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, it is. And you know, it's your morning, it's my evening, and I I'm thrilled, yeah. truly thrilled to 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 see the world become more close knit mm. and to have this opportunity. Um Lauren, can I ask you a question? Yeah. When was the first time that you did a video call? When was the in first your life? time I Oh my gosh. Mm. I feel like I was I feel like I was in university. I think it was probably like I know I'm guessing here when did Skype? I feel like it's whenever Skype came right? out. Yeah. And we are, yeah. we are using Skype today. How long ago was that? Like 2000 and 
seven. Two? 2003? Oh, 2000. Okay, oh, okay. Maybe, maybe for me it was probably around 2007, but I'm quite backwards in terms of for someone my Not generation. <laughs> I, I remember at my high school we had the opportunity. There was like a TV that had this giant camera on top of it, and we did that only a couple times with like a classroom. Yeah, I think it was in like France in my French class. We would like have conversations in English with them one week and then wow. conversations with them in French in the 90s. But this through the, the computer screen, I was working in design at, uh, at a catalog company that's uh, called it's called J. Crew. And uh, my video call was with a woman who was one of our producers in Shenzhen. And it was the first time that I understood that she lived at her office. Mm. And that was what I was hinting at before, that there are cultures where that's appreciated and that's understood, that you're going to sleep at your desk sometimes. I think that that culture is shifting away, especially in places like Shenzhen. But um, I, I was on a Skype call and I was like, that, wait, is that a bed? And she was like, yeah, that's where I yeah. That's where I sleep. Yeah. And I was like, how often? She was like, oh, just just like, you know, a couple of nights here and there. Yeah. But uh, that my yeah. blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. My problem, my biggest part of the reason why I started this podcast is because, you know, people, like there are so many big brands who are not asking proper questions like how are, how are the people who make our clothes being treated how are they being paid um do they have social security what are their working conditions and that is exactly you know a good a good window into like you know you know the the work culture um that shouldn't be endorsed you know like sleeping at your office like meaning that you are you are you are um it is expected of you to be working such long hours. And this is typical of Chinese manufacturing, to be honest. Like, you know, I'm not saying that every Chinese factory um, is, you know, does have Certainly poor not. working yeah. standards, but a big portion do. And that, you know, we're talking about communist China. Like my, my grandmother, who is Chinese, you know, had to flee China when um, the Communist Party took over. Um, you know, wow. millions and millions of people died. You know, we are talking about a very serious thing. And I feel like a lot of people don't understand these histories that come. Yeah, like kids don't learn history you, they've learned very basic history in school and it is a history of whatever agenda the, the government body that, you know, puts together the educational uh, curriculum, you know, decides to put on that curriculum. But, yeah, we need to ask serious questions about, you know, who's making our stuff. And, and I think brands are not held accountable I don't expect a brand to have integrity. You know, it's great when a brand does, but I don't expect companies to have, you know, integrity. But I do expect government bodies to to be on their tails about that. But unfortunately, that doesn't really Absolutely. happen. Absolutely. Yeah. But, there's, you know. There's a... 
there's so many different factors at play, especially in this country, as it relates to certain lobbies uh, and certain tax cuts, tax breaks that are made for certain industries and other industries largely go unnoticed. Mm. But uh, back to that woman that was sleeping at her desk, I was relaying that story to a young woman that I was dating at the time in New York City. She was a clothing designer and she said, oh, you need to read this book. The book was called, is called, Let My People Go Surfing. It's from Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia. And I read it in a weekend. And about two weeks after I read it, I was leaving J. Crew. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took a little bit of time, um, about six months, I think. I tempted and waited tables and tried to figure out how I was going to get in. But I got in and I worked at J. Crew, or excuse me, at Patagonia mm-hmm. uh, oh, wow. for a, for a, for a, few, a couple years. And while I was working at Patagonia, I learned a lot about ethical business practices, about global activism, uh, environmental causes, and s- grassroots activism, truly, mm. like at the at the level that I was in the Hudson River with uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. And, uh, and Pete Seeger cleaning up the Hudson River with yeah. a Patagonia fleece on my back, you know, That's and I sad. learned... I learned a sort of a different ethic there. I will say that that company too has its problems and has its has its miscues. Mm. Um, but as you were saying, all brands have have to kind of fail. They have to kind of go yeah. through that process and to in order to learn and be better. Yeah. And um, I've been I've been on the front lines of that a few different times. Um, the uh, through the ethical journey, the thing that I keep coming back to is something that uh, you're, we're both fans of Robert Reich. He mm. talks about it. Live more with less. Yeah. Support the people that are closest to you and let that reverberate out. Let that be an economical lesson. Whatever you can do to say to your neighbor, hey, I have this thing. I noticed that you don't have it. I don't need it anymore. Make that part of the conversation. Make that part, whether it's food, putting out a cupboard, or it's a a jean jacket that your dad wore in 1967 in high school. You know, whatever it is, just be part of a a conversation that's a little bit more, has a little bit, has more touch points to it. You know, Um, I talk a lot about how like I grew up with a, a mother who was a merchant and a father who was a salesperson. And, and I learned hand feel and I learned trend and I learned colors and I learned seasons. Um, but hand feel extends well beyond a piece of Oxford cloth. It, yeah. it goes into everything, how you, and in Maya Angelou, right? I, she's quoted as saying, you know, people will forget what you say. They'll forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And I mm. truly believe those words to be true. Um, I, I've learned since that she didn't actually say that, but she might have like <laughs> borrowed it from somebody else. But still, the meaning is there. And yeah. um, this is a time to refocus too. I've taken yeah. a lot of time during quarantine and, and during, uh, you know, spending a lot of time with my family to 
rearrange my priorities and really focus on the things that matter and frankly the people who matter and um one of the things that that really mattered to me was making sure that we celebrate this man yeah. uh Tony Fauci thank you Dr Fauci yeah and that we you, celebrate Dr. people Fauci. like my friend yeah. yeah like my friend Micah Micah is a brilliant artist and a wonderful illustrator and I want to support people that I love and yeah. I want the support right back and, and Micah and I have that relationship and it's wonderful. And I feel s very similarly about you. I'm still trying to remember when I first found Ponytail yeah. Journal, but like a while ago, when did you, st when did you start I Ponytail started Journal? I the blog in 2013. Yeah. Okay. And then I started my brand women's wear in 2015. Yeah. 15. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, it's been five so that happened years. really quick. Yeah, two years. That was all because of Mr. Nigel Caborn. <laughs> he. Yeah, can you, talk, can you talk a little bit about that relationship? How did you and Nigel first meet? I, I first met Nigel because at the time I was doing only Ponytail Journal and I was writing about style for Vogue Australia. And that really opened so many doors for me because I was I had this key to access, you know, to, to had, have conversations with so many people I really admired and respected. So I was in London and I organized an interview with Nigel. And it was at, at the at the Army Gym, which is his store in Covent Garden. And yeah, right. we sat down and like <laughs> It was just like soulmates, you know, like two people <laughs> who just love the same things and who are just open, like we're pretty young at heart and, you know, like we just, we would, we just hit it off. So, you know, after the interview, you know, I just felt like I'd met a long lost friend and and we just started hanging out all the time and you know he That's um, so awesome. yeah and then he kind of took me under his wing and said like hey Lauren you've got this really great thing that you've built um ponytail journal why don't you you should make a small range of clothing to sell on your blog and you should just start really small like five pieces and um, yeah, then it went from there and, you know, I, I was so fortunate that he took me on. I, I never studied fashion design. I studied, I went to art school, so I studied photography at art school and art history. Um, but I guess like, yeah, Nigel took me under his wing. He taught me how to run a fashion business, how to do, to, to do cost do costings for for the garments how to how to use illustrator and design clothing how to how to understand fabrics so I, I owe so much to him and and so I started yeah, yeah I started um, oh with a very small range of workwear and I partnered up with this guy called Ben Viapiana. In he's a Canadian denim tailor, but he was based in Bangkok at the time. And he had this, uh, <laughs> yeah, Canadian Canadian <laughs> denim tailor. Yes, just for for <laughs> the international pad. audience. Yes, 
The yeah. Canadian tuxedo is a denim on denim. Yes. So that he's actually living he's, that Yes, that and now he's back like, in hard. Canada. Awesome. He is back in Canada being true to him, his, his um, brand, and he's making tailored denim in Canada. But yeah, so we started, he had, he had this shipping container that he fitted out, you know, completely decked out with beautiful vintage machines and an air con, an AC unit, because in Thailand, it's always hot. And, you know, we made this collection of workwear and, you know, straight off the bat, Nigel, um, introduced me to his partner, his Japanese partner, um, Sam Sugure in Tokyo. And, you know, Sam distributed my my brand from the beginning. So he did that for – we. I, he awesome. distributed the brand for four seasons. Then I decided that I was ready to go independent and take my clothes to the rest of the world and, you know, do the trade shows in Paris and New York. And, and yeah, that's – I am I am so fortunate to have that, but at the same time, you know, I worked seven days a week for three years. <laughs> when I started the bread, I had like, I I got so many new white hairs on this side of my head because manufacturing is, you know, when you're young and you're starting out and you have no idea what you're doing, you make so many mistakes. And there is there's failure upon failure, and that's what it feels like. It was like I I am in this I am in the sea I'm in the ocean, and the waves will never stop coming. But every time a wave comes, you learn how to duck dive that wave, and you know navigate that a little better each time. And and the wave affects you less emotionally every time, and you know. But you just know that the waves will always be coming. So yeah, that's <laughs> that's how I have done it. Mentorship, mentorship, having a yeah. mentor yes. is so essential. Yes, in in this business, in any business, and it's something that you know I have often sought, and um, I'm incredibly jealous of your relationship with Nigel. I met Nigel uh, in 2010. Uh, the the summer summer show at at, at Pitti Pitti Uomo uh, Pitti yeah. Uomo and I was wearing a a vintage eighties um, uh, pastel plaid with a flap pocket uh, made uh, in a Hong Kong that. tailor's shop and he said to Chris why why aren't you wearing why aren't you making this and then uh uh uh, uh Daiki Suzuki said ah. the same thing and, and, and from Engineer Garments. And then Mark McNary came over and he's like, this kid's shirt is great. You should make this. And so or maybe it was – I don't remember what it was, but we made that shirt. Nice. <laughs> it was because of Nigel. Yeah. And then this like domino effect of of, one, of like one vintage piece. And that's, that's Chris's brand is, you know, taking something that existed and then bringing it into the modern – era and um i think all of those designers loved all those guys yeah i think all of those guys um daiki mark mark mcnary i don't know personally but i love 
I love his work. And Nigel, you know, they all take from vintage. I think um, Nigel told me, because Nigel's had his business for over 50 years now, and he told me that actually the person who who taught him how to design of vintage military pieces was actually Paul Smith, who worked for Nigel at the time. Um, you know, this was like decades ago, but in Nigel's early business, Paul Paul used to work for Nigel, and and um, yeah, like I think one and thing Ian that Haley learned from from Paul, and like one one generation begets the next, and yeah, uh, and we Ian, Ian Paley of Garb Store, uh, yeah, yeah, right, and I think um, I think that's what's beautiful, and I think that's a profound understanding that I that I very much get from Nigel is it's all about passing it on. It's all about mm-hmm. passing on the goodness and knowledge to the next generation and not keeping it all for yourself. Like, you know, it, it is a very competitive business, but the thing that I love about the men's, more so the men's fashion scene versus the women's scene is that there's this lighthearted buddy, there's this friendship that that forms and there's this openness of you know giving giving that goodness to the next generation so that so that you know this creativity can continue and 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 working with integrity working with good makers um, and making creative ideas creating creative ideas that are unique and not from something that you've already seen um in a in a storefront or on instagram these days you know so many people get their inspiration from instagram that you know it's not about that it's about living your passion you know in real life um so yeah it's the same thing with the shirt with the ladies with the shirt sleeve and get men handing down that tradition handing mm. down that and and having that relationship yeah. the, the 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 family that assembles the insides of the football helmets every business has this menswear is one where it really easily shows up and is easily conveyed in the nigel to paul smith to ian paley of garb store story where you can see very clearly the progeny. You can understand yeah. how Margaret Howell came to be. You can understand how all of these different and how you came to be, frankly. Yeah. And, and I think that and, uh, you know, I owe a great deal of, of debt to to Leon Leonwood Bean, to uh, mm. to Mr. Zabercrombie and Fitch, to the Brooks Brothers. Um, and I think about it and I think about like how the fetishization of all of that, the fetishization of of uh, Gore-Tex mm. at the time that Gore-Tex was coming out and like ripping it from the Patagonia catalog and taping it to my to my bedroom wall and like thinking about it in these terms of like this is changing the way that I operate. Mm. Um, and there's that part as well that like if it wasn't for my experiences as a young man fetishizing and understanding, you know, the the nerd culture that surrounds product, mm. um, I wouldn't be able to pass that love and that passion on to on to anybody else. And, and I think that it's going to be our jobs yeah. to ensure that 
Instagram isn't where this stuff dies, that it yeah. it lives on in life, in in and around us. And we, we help them to understand the value of something that is built to last, that is yeah. not made to be obsolete. Um, permanent obsolescence or whatever that's called, the, the built-in obsolescence of a thing, like that's something that I see in my children. They just mm. expect that their tennis shoes are going to wear out in a couple months and they expect that certain things are going to be replaceable or replaced. Mm. I still have, it's right here. I still have my very first Patagonia snap tee, Navy blue. I received it when I was in middle school, 13 oh, or 14 wow. years old for my birthday. And it's still my, I mean, this is my, my dad got yeah. this when he was 16. <laughs> You know, oh. and it's still on my body. So, like, that's it's still got that, such a rich blue. It's such it's still got a rich, deep blue denim on it. Like for for being worn for so long for two generations. Right. Yeah. And it and it 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 has to do with the fact that like I took he took really good care of it, and I feel obligated to take yeah. really good care of it in in return. Yeah. Right. So, now moving on, I want to ask you because you did, you know, sure. tell me about you are planning to start a new project called No First. Oh. Tell me about that. Yep. You're going to start a podcast, and what is your podcast going to be about? So, so uh, th thank you for bringing that up, Lauren. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm nervous as all hell, frankly, <laughs> to talk about it. To be talking about it on a podcast makes me even more nervous. Um, but it's something that I'm way late to. I was pretty early to blogging. I'm way late to, to starting a podcast. But um, I told you I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. I love, uh, I you know, the minute that I got my driver's license here in, in St. Louis, the first place I drove, literally the day I got my driver's license, I drove to a mobile DJ company. Oh. I love the microphone. Yeah. I've loved it since I was 16. I've always wanted to kind of interact with people. And uh, I especially love reaction. Um, I went through a pretty tough time not too long ago. Uh, I, I, I moved from – I moved halfway across the country. I took a relationship with me. I had a job when I left. I didn't basically shortly after I arrived – and um, I found myself crawling back to my home, St. Louis, um, where I've reestablished myself in a very different way than I ever had before. And it feels different. It feels, um, for me, more meaningful. It feels mm -hmm. like I had to hit rock bottom to understand what solid ground felt like. And one of the things that kind of kept me going through that was something that the original all plat out carried, which was the tagline from Epictetus, the, the stoic philosopher, know first who you are and then adorn yourself accordingly. Now, when I read that at 26, 27 years of age, and I first jotted it down in a, in a field notes, I, I, um, I think I meant, you know, like how you adorn yourself, but mm. really it's how you carry yourself, mm. how you live and walk through the world. Yes. And, um, my intention is to draw from my guests and occasionally it'll be guestless. It'll just be an opportunity for me to exposit on a lesson or a anecdote or a story mm -hmm. that I've heard is the stories of reclamation. Mm 
the refer- the uh, the redemption songs, the understanding that you can go to the brink and live to tell the tale. Um, I'm always I've always been a big believer that the um, it's more about the journey than it is the destination, and that mm-hmm. the adventure doesn't really begin until the plans go awry, and. Yeah. Mixing all of that together, I want to talk to people who have failed and lived to tell the tale, who have had many careers, who have had many different versions of themselves, as I have. And um, so that's where it sorts, sort of germinates from. Mm. Um, I recorded some episodes. I recorded like an introduction and and I played it for my wife and for my children. And they were like, boring. <laughs> so it's, it's, I, it was very low energy and sort of like – uh, sort of like very quiet NPR, like <laughs> this is the No First podcast, and they're like, "You need to like jazz it up and yeah. make it like really funky and be and real, so, be yourself." Yeah, yeah. So that's what it's going to be. Um, I really appreciate you asking. You know, yeah. it's uh, like I said, it's super nerve wracking, and again, sort of like refocusing my life and looking, uh, looking back and looking forward a little bit through this time mm. of the coronavirus. I relaunched all plaid out. I put together a shop. I put nice. some products together with some friends and uh, we're just going to kind of wing it. We're going to yeah. see what sticks to the wall and, and yeah. what doesn't. And uh, it just feels like the time for it just yeah. to, just to try again. I'm, I'm so, I, I admire what the way that you put yourself together so much because even with that original ponytail journal, I remember going to it and being like, this is an experience. The way that you develop a world is how I want to. And on my best day, I do. But you seem to do it all the time. And I think maybe I just need to work seven days a week. I think that's what it is. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I Please don't do that. Yeah, like that kills me. Like three years of working seven days a week, I like had crazy anxiety problems. I, I had I also hit you know, I hit a point where I was like, you know, if I keep doing this, I won't be able to do this anymore. So I had a lot of learning curves in, in my short, very short, you know, span. But yeah, I realized that, yes, you have to, you, ha- you have to be dedicated to something, but you also, for creativity, you need to give yourself a break. And I realized that yeah. creativity comes from when you have space in your mind. And when you have that time to um, let go and not think about work at all. And honestly, like, <laughs> even though the shit storm keeps brewing um, and, you know, this, <laughs> the waves keep coming, I feel like I've gotten to a point where I can, where, where terrible news doesn't phase me anymore <laughs> because I, you know, I have even a bigger workload than I did when I was working seven days a week, but I'm not working seven days a week anymore. You know, I, I have time. I, I purposely make time for the people who are important to me. And that gives me more richness, more space and helps me. It feels work feels just more effortless now. Um, but I think, yeah, I think I've it, making my universes, you know, it's been 
a very selfish thing in a way. You know, I've just always done what the hell I, whatever the hell I want to do. <laughs> and that's super selfish. But at the same, and, and, you know, nothing that I put out, I feel like is ever perfect, but I'd rather put it out there and get it out and get people appreciating it rather than, than keeping things behind closed doors for years and years and never putting something out and then just never having anything out. So, you know, there's a fine line between the two of me. them. Oh, good. Get it out there. Get your face out there. Yeah. Done. Done yeah. is better than perfect. Yes. Prioritize done over prioritizing perfect. Yeah. The, uh, the, the thing that I, I have the, the, I've held kind of close to the, to the vest here is that I took on another thing mm. just this week. Wow. Um, I was having a conversation with my wife about my priorities and like things that I've always wanted to do. And she said, you know, you always talk about your, your alma mater. And I don't know if you can see that red devil behind me, but yes, that's a I chenille do. red devil from the letter jacket of my high school. Oh, wow. And I went to an all boys Catholic high school whose mascot was a red devil, which, you know, that's how crazy. perfect is that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, motiv- motivating young men and turning them into it's red devils. devils. Um, I, I took on um, uh, one of my mentors passed away not too long ago, and I've taken on his business class. I'm going to be teaching two hours a week to high school students oh, wow. an introduction to business class. So for those of you listening out there, if you have tips, tricks, anything, any lesson plans, I'm open. I'm yeah. going to be injecting a lot of our conversation, though, into that class, mm. helping this next generation of young people. And this goes back to what we were talking about passing it on. I want them to understand and kind of live with me through what I've experienced, that you can leave the job that seemed like the dream job when you got it. And then you realized, I actually am developing a different ethic. And my ethic is more closely aligned with something that's closer to this and telling those stories and understanding how to build and promise a, a product that is meaningful and is high quality. And, yeah. um, so it's, it's like the honor of my life and yeah. I feel like the luckiest guy in the world right yeah, now. Yeah, that really is do. so, re- that, that's going to be so fulfilling. And I think past that goes back to the idea of passing, passing it on to the yeah. next generation. Um, I think what two words that I have in mind that I feel like are so important for people to understand when they're starting business or just for themselves as well is one is responsibility. Take responsibility for your happiness. Take responsibility for doing things right. And two, which is very similar, is integrity. Make things that have integrity have integrity in yourself. I think they're the two, the biggest lessons I've learned in life, and I continue to fail and 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 try again and try again. But um, yeah. But but with with trying, there's two. My two words would be humility and sincerity. Mm. And imbuing that into your product is going and you do that so naturally that I'm I can't imagine why you would have thought thought of those words because they're just they're in your 
they're in your aura. They're who you are. They're, they're how you live. But I have to actually work at humility and I have to actually work at sincerity. So uh, trust I me when I say that. Like, yeah. Yeah. But it's 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 definitely like it's the way uh, I, I've, I've been reading lots and lots of criticisms and critiques of of places like Brooks Brothers and even J. Crew as they're suffering during this time. And and the, the question of, you know, the factory store and the, the broadening of their skews rather than narrowing mm. focus and focusing on those four things. That's really what it's all about. Build the best thing you can yeah. in the best way you can. When when the the Garland, North Carolina shirt factory, it was first announced that they would be closing, I turned to my wife and I said, could we save it? What could we do? And she said, I'm sure we could pull together some investors and yeah, you could keep pumping out blue Oxford cloth shirts, but I don't know how we would do it. Mm. Um that is me, though. That's what I would do. I would want to save a place like that. And that goes back to the beginning of our conversation, understanding and valuing the communities of our small towns throughout the world, but yeah. especially throughout this country. Well, that is an awesome place to leave this conversation, Max. Thank I you so. so much for being on the, <laughs> Thank the you so much, Lauren. show. And um, for people out there who want to... Um, check out what you're doing how how can they do that well they can follow me on instagram at max wassler or go to my blog allplatout.com awesome thanks bye everybody bye thank you guys thank you lauren